Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens here in the city. And as you know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Uh, tonight's going to be a little bit of a hybrid, um, but on prior episodes, you've covered, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York. There were about half of them, believe it or not. Uh, and also did another program about uh, American, about New Yorkers who ran for president. And about half of them were from New York who uh, ran for president over the years. Um, we've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about African-American history in the city, going back to the time of the Dutch, the city, the, the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, the history of punk and opera. You can tell those are favorite subjects of mine. We've looked at our public library systems. We actually have three of them. We visited some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. Yes, everyone, New York has amazing things, even our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight is a sort of a hybrid show. We're going to be talking a lot about architectural history, uh, but also about uh, two streets in the city that don't really comprise a neighborhood in the classic sense of uh, what a neighborhood is. Um, we're going to look at buildings on two famous New York streets, Central Park South and a very small stretch of West 57th Street between 5th and 8th Avenue, which is also known these days as Billionaire's Row. Um, one note about tonight's show is since there is so much history about these buildings, uh, I don't think we're going to have the time to talk about some of the newer construction. So my guest and I, we were just talking that we would host a different show down the road about how more recent uh, architecture, how more recently constructed buildings have actually altered the skyline in the city in different parts. And speaking of our guest, he is David Griffin. He's New York, rediscovering uh, New York's special consultant and a regular on the show. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, and he provides creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David co-hosts a Room at the Top series with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking and discovery series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, including, as you might have guessed from the name, at the top of those buildings. David has a blog, his latest blog. It's called Every Building on Fifth. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. 
Great to be here, Jeff. Great to see you and um, and be uh, on the show again. I, I always enjoy our visits. Well, so it's not just great to have you, but I'm really lucky to have you. Your expertise and your passion and your sense of humor all combined are uh, uh, a special a special feature on the shows that we do together. Um, well, one thing that I'm uh, I'm always uh, interested in is people who live and work here and who are passionate about the city um, to find out where they're from and and how they may have wound up here. Um, you're from the New York area, but not originally from New York City itself. Yes, I grew up um, near um, Port Jefferson uh, as a kid until we were about 13. And then my family moved up uh, to the Hudson River Valley, where my grandmother uh, was, was living and her, her family was from. And we've been there sort of ever since. I, I have lived in the, fam- in the city like on and off over the years, but uh, I've always considered myself a New Yorker. Uh, via osmosis, as it were, the way I think many people in the Hudson River Valley and Long Island do. And uh, it's always really been the city to me. So, And how did you get interested in architectural history? And then also, in, I mean, there's no better place to study uh, the architecture of in this country and perhaps the world than New York. Well, that's a little bit forward to say that uh, we have the greatest architecture in the whole world, but we certainly have the most amazing architecture in the United States. Uh, well, my mother was an artist, and she uh, really believed in kind of tuning us into uh, sort of the visual aspect of culture. And she was also very interested in bringing us to museums. And as it turned out, uh, through happenstance, we wound up being, myself and my siblings, the youngest employees of the um, Parks Department in New York State, when we became costume interpreters at Old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island. And we actually would have a chance to sort of dress up in the the costumes of the 1850s period and demonstrate toys and games of that period. Uh, But we also had a chance to stay overnight in some of the old houses there. And I think that really kind of led me to an interest in what architectural history was, the fact that these buildings had been around for a while was very interesting to me. So I wanted to know more about how they were made, who made them, et cetera, and so forth. And one thing just kind of led to another. I majored in architect in art history with a focus on architecture um, at Vassar um, and continued to kind of develop my career from there. Mm. Let's move to very confined part of the city that we're going to talk about tonight. It's actually six blocks. It's uh, 59th Street, or also known as Central Park South, from 5th Avenue to 8th Avenue, and uh, 57th Street in the same uh, three-block range. Um, It's pretty obvious why Central Park South is called Central Park South, but I'd like to start out the the study of this to uh, find out, you know, when, because the park was opened, I think, around the time of the Civil War, but the name of the street didn't change. What, what, when did it change to Central Park South and what led to it, its name being changed? Um, three blocks of 59th Street bordering Central Park were renamed after the park in 1896. And I think that came about when you know, Central Park West was being renamed about that time. Central Park South had already been sort of developed as a luxury area. The fact that Central Park was a huge key factor for why people were living there or developing buildings near there, I think was kind of at the forefront of the property owner's mind. And I'm sure that that had a huge uh, part to play in the renaming of those blocks. Um, For those uh, not entirely familiar with New York City's uh, grid, uh, it was created under the commissioner's plan of 1811. 
Um, 59th Street was one of the streets created at that time as one of a what they would consider a minor east-west street across Manhattan because Central Park had not been planned yet. So in fact, 59th Street only gained its kind of import after the development of Central Park. Uh, 59th Street name initially applied to the entirety of the street between the Hudson and East Rivers, and the addresses on Central Park South follow those of what had been West 59th Street. Um, it was really the construction of the park in the 1860s and 1870s that led to the development of really upscale hotels, apartments, and other institutions on this section of 59th Street. And there was the original Plaza Hotel, which the Plaza Hotel has replaced, um, a very famous building called the Hawthorne, and an incredible complex called the Navarro Flats, which were sort of listed as sort of Spanish apartments. Um, that's what they called them. Um, in, sort of in comparison to what people were calling French flats elsewhere. Uh, and all of those buildings had been taken down and replaced, but they really sort of established a kind of a tone of luxury for this set of the city. Um, mm. So Central Park South is um, bordered by Central Park West, to the west of Central Park. And then at the north, there is Central Park North. The only portion of the avenues that, that border Central Park that do not, uh, is not named after the park is, of course, Fifth Avenue because Fifth Avenue was already Fifth Avenue and nobody needed to rename it to make it sound more glamorous. Uh, that was, you know, the going standard for a glamorous avenue. Um, what kind of structures existed on Central Park South before the buildings that we see today? And of course, we're going to get to those buildings in just a minute. You know, the, well, the they the were they were lower scale. They were very luxurious, uh, but they were kind of an experimental mix of apartment and hotel life. Um, many people are uh, perhaps unaware of the fact that many of the great apartment buildings in New York City were considered apartment hotels. In other words, you had an apartment in the building, and then the kitchen was actually elsewhere. Staff and service was elsewhere. Other amenities were elsewhere. We're sort of making a full circle these days with apartment buildings that offer things like swimming pools and greenhouses and, and you know, sports fields and things like that to everybody who's living in the building. But back then, it was sort of like you had your rooms in the building, but you didn't necessarily have a kitchen. You didn't necessarily have total autonomy. You, you, had, you had kind of a shared service thing. So as that kind of fell out of favor, people wanted their own kitchens and their own kind of households to be just sort of sealed off. Uh, the buildings were replaced after the 1890s, the early 1900s period uh, into the 1930s, 1940s. Were the same kinds of buildings extant on 57th Street as were on, on Central Park South or were they different? To a somewhat similar degree, but much of West 57th Street was in fact brownstones and individual mansions. Part of the reason for the fact of this was the fact that it was, it was a very wide boulevard and uh, a building that no longer exists, the Vanderbilt Mansion, which stood where Bergdorf Goodman's does at the uh, sort of the northwest corner of 57th Street, 5th Avenue, was sort of seen as the knee plus ultra of domestic design. So the well-to-do kind of rode its coattails, if you will, for several blocks up West 57th Street. And the building typology was very different from what was on Central Park South. Hmm. Well, let's go to the buildings without any further ado. Um, probably the most famous, David, on these two streets is the Plaza Hotel. Yes. 
Uh, it's actually so famous that we devoted an episode to it, or actually half an episode along with the Waldorf. Uh, and uh, I would encourage our listeners to to seek that out for a really detailed history of the plaza. Um, it dates from about August 26th of this year, depending on the podcast service that you, that you use. Um, but we can't talk about iconic buildings on Central Park South without at least touching on the plaza and talking about it briefly. Well, it replaced an earlier hotel of the same name from 1883. In fact, the new developers wanted to just add stories onto it, and they found out the older building wouldn't hold the weight. So they decided to demolish it. Um, Henry Hardenberg is the designer of the plaza. He is also known for the Dakota Apartments, which happened almost 20 years earlier. The style is a very graceful interpretation of French Renaissance elements, appraised by none other than Frank Lloyd Wright, who very rarely had anything good to say about any building in New York City. Uh, it was one of the world's earliest skyscraper hotels, rising to a height of 20 stories. And among its lavish fittings were no less than 1,650 crystal chandeliers and the largest ever order of gold-rimmed cutlery. Um, its opening night in 1907 was attended by Mark Twain, Diamond Jim Brady, and Lillian Russell, among others. And when it first, when it officially opened to guests in 1907, the first guest to sign its register was Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt. Now, it was the plaza was also used as a residential hotel, wasn't it? It wasn't just people yes. here for a couple of days or a week or two. Yes, like the other earlier buildings that I have mentioned, it was a place where people actually lived. George J. Gould lived there for a time. Many other people did. Um, the Russian princess Vilma Rovov Palagi. Um, a prominent portrait painter, actually, in the early 20th century, lived in a suite on the third floor with her pet lion. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, FDR, George M. Cohen, Marilyn Monroe, Laurence Olivier, Richard Burton, and Elizabeth Taylor, separately and together, all stayed or hosted <laughs> major functions at the plaza over the years. And the plaza was, as I mentioned, Frank Lloyd Wright's favorite building in New York City, um, he actually designed several buildings while staying at the plaza for other locations. However, the most famous sort of living guest, if you will, at the plaza, in other words, someone living there rather than just staying for a while, was the fictional Eloise, the creation of the eccentric author Kay Thompson, um, whose portrait uh, hung in the plaza for many years and I believe still does so. Uh, one last thing about the plaza, it uh, was the, the second location of one of the very few tiki bars in New York City, Trader Vic's, famous for its rum cocktails and rather bizarre decor. Well, you know, one of the things about the plaza is before they did this uh, renovation, I actually, uh, many of us have went there a number of times, of course, in the Oyster Bar downstairs, uh, but also uh, the Oak Room, which uh, uh, in yes. in its day had become a little bit, I don't want to say da- uh, dilapidated, but a little bit stale and uh, dated, but it was also unofficially uh, back in the 80s, it was kind of known as sort of a gay bar, um, and, uh, and I went there a number of times. Um, anyway, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our exploration of only six blocks in New York, Central Park South and 57th Street, with our guest tonight and our show's special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc, now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? 
I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. And you're back to Rediscovering New York on our episode about Central Park South and 57th Street, but only between 5th and 8th Avenues. My guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who's also the program's special consultant. Um, David, another famous hotel on Central Park South, now that we've left the plaza and are in our rearview mirror, another famous hotel is the Essex House. And one of the things that makes it famous for people who may not recognize the name when they when they hear this is that amazing red neon sign that seems like it's visible for miles and miles around. Yeah, it, it really is a spectacular feature of um, New York City's skyline. Uh, the only thing that I can think that kind of matches it in the city itself is that amazing neon sign on the New Yorker Hotel, uh, which is on the west side of Manhattan. Um, the building opened in 1931. It's 44 stories tall. It's one of the largest Art Deco hotels in the world. It contains 426 Art Deco style rooms and 101 suites as well as 147 condominium residences at this point. Uh, again, it's kind of interesting to see that some of these hotels have kind of returned to a residential role in the city, in a way, in the way that they actually were intended when they first opened originally. Uh, the roof of doors contains that amazing neon red sign. Um, it is six stories tall. Wow. And it was installed in 1932, the year after the hotel itself opened. Um, it's really been kind of a feature of Central Park South and the Manhattan skyline in, in a way that very few kind of instances of kind of signage have been. Um, it is one of the final living places, the hotel for the late musician David Bowie. Uh, the Russian-born composer Igor Stravinsky lived at the Essex House until the end of his life. 
And Casey Stendel frequented the Essex House during his New York Yankees and New York Mets managing careers. Oh, wow. Quite a, a monumental presence on the skyline. And despite the the renovations and the updates in the hotel, they still have Art Deco style rooms, don't they, at the Essex House? They do. The furnishings and the fixtures are all kept in the style of the original Art Deco. Mm. Well, let's take a brief detour from living and lodging places and saunter up Central Park South a little bit. Uh, and let's go to the New York Athletic Club. First, you know, how does a gym, I mean, it's not, it, it's not only a gym, but, you know, I want to ask you how a gym could get built on one of the most expensive addresses in the whole city. How did, how did the New York Athletic Club wind up on Central Park South? Well, the, the New York Athletic Club was one of the very first uh, private clubs of its type founded, um, potentially, uh, definitely in the United States, and one of the earliest in the world in terms of reaching out to people who were amateur athletes. Uh, And they had two different residences before they moved to Central Park South. At that point, they were probably one of the preeminent kind of athletic or gymnasium clubs in the world, really. Uh, And they kind of hark back to the idea of the gymnasium as a central focus for um, a type of athletic culture that they were seeking to kind of reinvent based on classical ideas of Greek and Roman you know, physiology, athleticism, kind of the, the purity of athletics, if you will. Um, the building is an amazingly kind of cavernous uh, structure. It was built in the early 20th century uh, and was designed by the architectural firm of York and Sawyer, who also did the Federal Reserve Bank of New York downtown at 33 Liberty Street. York and Sawyer, for me, are sort of a sleeper architectural firm. I think they're one of the most talented architectural firms who have worked in New York City. They had an incredible sense of scale and detailing. They knew how to create a product that was extraordinarily lavish and opulent, and yet somehow also very reserved. Uh, They did the Bowery Savings Bank, which is on um, East 42nd Street. They did the Apple Savings Bank, which is at Broadway at 73rd. Um, And all of their buildings have this kind of very, almost kind of monastic sense of solidity to them. Um, The Athletic Club is actually surprisingly austere, both inside and out. It isn't quite as opulent as some of their other work, but it's very dignified. And it was a 24-floor floor facility, which was unheard of at the time uh, for a gymnasium or a private club. Uh, included two restaurants, a cocktail lounge, a library, a ballroom, billiards room, meeting rooms, a rooftop solarium, eight floors of guest rooms for members and club guests. And the athletic training rooms uh, included a swimming pool, basketball courts, boxing rings, a fencing and wrestling room, judo floor, and squash courts. Uh, the New York Racquet Club and the University Club are probably the only two other club buildings I could think of in New York City that offered anywhere near the accoutrements that the uh, New York Athletic Club has done. And the club was groundbreaking in establishing a real foundation and also sort of a how-to book uh, for amateur athletics, which until the athletic club was started was not athletic. Uh, amateur athletics didn't have the same place in our culture. No, and this was the club that really compiled and applied a code of rule for the rules for the government of athletic meetings. It was the first to offer prizes for open amateur games, and it was the first to hold an amateur championship. Um, the members of the New York Athletic Club have won 119 Olympic gold medals. Wow. 53 silver medals, 59 bronze medals. 
Presently, the club has top-ranked competitors in wrestling, judo, rowing, fencing, water polo, and track and field, among other sports. It is also, and this is something that I really enjoyed uh, the times that I've visited the club, um, it's one of the very few buildings in all of New York City to incorporate a loggia, which is a sort of a recessed balcony, which is not open to the elements, but is open to the weather. Uh, my beloved Montauk Club, which obviously, Jeff, you have visited with me as one of the others. Um, but it, it really is actually a, a little bit of a sleeper of a building. I think people walk by it without realizing how kind of sophisticated and how well designed it really is. Mm. Well, I have to admit that, you know, I've been in many buildings in the city. I have not been inside the New York Athletic Club, but would love to do it sometime. Um, so leaving the Athletic Club and going across the street, uh, we are going to come to 220 Central Park South, going back to residential buildings. Now, this is a very interesting building because most of the residences are actually duplexes. Yes, it is a residential skyscraper and it's comprised of two sections. Um, there is a 70-story, 950-foot tower on 58th Street that is actually the 17th tallest building in New York City. And there's an 18-story section on Central Park South. So the building appears to be built in setbacks, the way the classic skyscrapers of the Art Deco period were, which makes sense since it was designed by Robert A.M. Stern Architects. And Robert A.M. Stern is, of course, a great admirer of his work in architecture. Um, interiors were by uh, Thierry Dufont. Uh, there's a limestone facade uh, intended to blend in with other buildings around Central Park. And as you said, most of the 118 apartments are duplexes, although some of the units have been combined to create larger penthouse or duplex apartments. Uh, there's a wine cellar, private dining rooms, and various recreational facilities, very much in keeping, I think, with the first generation of luxury apartment, quote-unquote, hotels developed along Central Park South. And some home purchases at the building at 220 Central Park South um, have set some impressive records, some incredible sales records in the city. Well, yes. Two of the building's units have, in fact, sold for over $100 million, including a $238 million unit purchased by the hedge fund manager, Kenneth Griffin, in 2019. This is evidently the most expensive home ever sold in the United States to date. Well... We're going to move next door uh, to 222 Central Park South to the Gainsborough Studios, which were actually not originally designed completely for a living space, were they? Yes. One of my favorite buildings in New York City, uh, designed by Charles W. Buckham. The building is 16 stories tall, which makes it sort of a little bit of a dwarf among its grander neighbors now, but was still a skyscraper back when it was built. Um, it has only 34 apartments. Um, the Gainsborough Studios, of course, faces Central Park to the north and is just east of Columbus Circle. The facade contains incredible detailing. There's a bust of the painter Thomas Gainsborough above the main entrance, which, of course, gives the building its name. But there's also base reliefs across the third floor designed by Isadora Conti and tile murals by Henry Chapman Mercer's fantastic Moravian pottery and tile works at the top stories, these kind of bands of color that suggest almost Native American designs. Um, these buildings were designed as studio and workplaces for artists, where they could also live if they chose, although many people painted someplace and then um, lived elsewhere. The fact and, this, was, and this was in generations before we had the live work uh, uh, artist studios in exactly, Soho. Exactly. But the thing is, is that because Gainsborough Studios is facing north, that's the perfect light that artists want. 
So uh, some of the studios have 18-foot ceilings, double-high spaces. Others are smaller units that occupy part of a single floor. Artists generally rented the studios as a combination residence and working space. Um, it was built between 1907 and 1908. Artist cooperative housing, gradually now at this point, it's basically a standard residential building. Uh, the lobby was restored in 1950s and 1981, and it was designated a city landmark in 1988. And this actually was, at its inception, um, it was an artist cooperative. It, it wasn't just yes. built as a rental building. It was, it was a co-op when it first, when it was first built. It was one of the earliest buildings in New York to be developed as an artist studio space, and it and other buildings like it, we're going to talk about another one a little later on, gave rise to the term the studio apartment. Hmm. Well, we're going to go around the corner. Uh, we're going to take a break in a minute or two, but uh, we're going to finish up our segment of Central Park South, uh, which is not quite on Central Park South, but on the south side of 57th Street. It's one of the more unusual buildings in the city. Uh, and that for years housed the New York Convention and Visitors Bureau, but it looked kind of strange. You want to talk about about two, two Columbus, Circle? Columbus Circle? Actually, um, once one of my one of my guilty pleasures, I think, in architecture, an incredible building by Edward Durrell Stone, created for um, AMP Air Huntington Hartford as a museum. Um, Huntington Hartford had one of the world's most amazing art collections, including works by Rembrandt, Monet, Manet, Turner, and Salvador Dali. He wanted to create a museum that was in opposition to the Museum of Modern Art. Um, the building was, unfortunately, a 12-story modernist structure, marble clad with Venetian motifs. It was often called the Lollipop Building, a reference to a mocking review by the great architectural critic Ada Louise Huxtable, in which she called it, quote, a die-cut Venetian palazzo on lollipops. Um, the Museum of Arts and Design acquired the building and began to significantly alter its design. There was a huge preservation blow up about this. Um, yeah, I remember there was a there was a debate on and 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 an effort to try to get the building landmarked, which yes. is kind of funny to landmark because we we're accustomed to landmarking really old and beautiful structures. But this, of course, had architectural significance, and they were trying to get this uh, uh, unique building landmarked. It, it unfortunately did not work. Um, I remember going to hearings about it. I was very much for the preservation of this building. As I said, novelist Tom Wolfe, artist Chuck Close and Frank Stella, Robert A.M. Stern, um, Kate Wood, a colleague of mine at Landmark Branding, uh, who has moved on from there. All of them were people who were trying to fight for this building, and I really think it's a shame it didn't happen. Uh, Museum of Art and Design, uh, Museum of Art, by the way, it, it, design, it, it is a great collection. The, the, you, go, you should absolutely go there. They have wonderful programming. Um, I am still disappointed that they didn't kind of realize what a kind of jewel box they had in the original building. Well, isn't that the story of, uh, sadly, of in later years of realizing uh, what may have been lost when people want to do the latest and the greatest? Um, all right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin and this program about Central Park South and 57th Street between 5th and 8th Avenues, six blocks long. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness 
that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. You know you have it, the potential for a more rewarding life, a life that matters. But how do you get there? The answer is in a best-selling book by the coach of the successful and wealthy, Ken D. Foster. The Courage to Change Everything, Daily Strategies and Wisdom to Awaken Your Hidden Genius and Transform Your Life. With this powerful yet amazingly simple daily guide, your future is in your hands. You will be empowered to unlock your potential, bring out your true gifts, increase your wealth, and take your life and business to a new level. Get your life-transforming copy of Ken D. Foster's The Courage to Change Everything by going to couragetochange.us. That's couragetochange.us. Quite frankly, there's no other book like this. Imagine what your life could be like if you had at your fingertips the success principles to create the life you've always wanted. Are you ready to live your dream? Go to couragetochange.us. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our program is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of this amazing place. There's another great show on the air about New York, and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris Stevens. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our uh, continue our conversation with David, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our guest for the entire program is David Griffin uh, of Landmark Branding. We have no shortage of things to talk about. David, I want to ask you about Landmark Branding, what you do and how you uh, combine your love of New York's architectural history with your business. 
Well, um, Jeff, I have been running my own company uh, from 2013 and full-time from 2017 in terms of providing marketing support for the owners, developers, or brokers, um, and interior decorators of either historic or architecturally uh, valuable buildings in New York City. Uh, prior to founding my own company, I worked with Thomas and Associates, which was one of the most prestigious art consulting firms in New York City. I worked there for 17 years, gaining the title senior associate. And so we had some amazing clients, Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, the Whitney, uh, you name it, we, we work with everybody in New York City. Uh, nowadays, I provide everything from VIP tours to broker profiles. Uh, I write listings. I write um, sort of special identity information. I've done building profiles for SL Green and other uh, companies. And I write for Dwell, uh, Metropolis. I've written for uh, Real Estate Weekly. Uh, I've written for Brownstoner. I write, I've written for the National Trust Historic Preservation Magazine. And um, I have a blog, as you mentioned, Every Building on Fifth, which is every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square all the way up to the Harlem Armory. I think one of the great Art Deco buildings of the city, definitely worth a visit, and an amazing historic uh, kind of uh, cultural landmark in Harlem. Um, Currently, I am working to develop a book on the history of the penthouse as an American architectural type, and I do uh, numerous illustrated uh, sort of online tours and walks through various uh, architectural typologies. That's great. Um, and I've had the pleasure of, of being present at uh, very many of your lectures, including the one on the penthouse. Um, and, and in uh, our room of the top series with Jennifer Wallace and, and James Wallace of Mason Art New York, who are. And Jennifer and James are going to be a guest uh, along with you on a show in January that we are going to have to talk about public art, which I'm really looking forward to as well. Um, well, we're going to start off this segment uh, on 57th Street, but also a building that is in your block, every building on 5th. And we're talking about the Crown Building, which is right yeah. across uh, the street from the famous Tiffany's. It, um, you want to talk about the Crown Building and what was it? Uh... Originally known as the Hetcher Building and designed by Warren and Wetmore, who did Grand Central Terminal. It was completed in 1921 at 26 floors. Uh, the name was a change to the Crown Building in 1983 because of its uh, incredible diadem-like look when illuminated at night. It is a very, very exquisite skyscraper, one of the most graceful kind of interpretations, and most playful, I would say, of the French Renaissance in New York City, and very famous for a very long time for housing not only great jewelers companies, but some of the greatest art galleries in New York City, including Adelson Galleries, for example, uh, which has subsequently moved to the floor building, and numerous others. There's been, uh, it, it is literally one of the great sort of destination addresses, I think, in New York. Actually, I remember when I was um, looking for a job in magazine ad sales in the 90s, uh, I had an interview with the ad director of Playboy. Playboy was in that building, and uh, he had this incredible <laughs> office on the corner in a corner suite on 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 Fifty Seventh. It was the third floor, but I was just I was just in awe of being at that place uh, and and having this conversation with him, looking out at Tiffany's and looking across at uh, uh, at Bergdorf. So it was it, it was something. Um, it does have a little bit of a sordid history in terms of its ownership, doesn't it? 
Oh, I would say, you know, not to cast a shadow against anybody who's ever been there, but it was purchased in 1981, evidently, by the Philippine president, Ferdinand Marcos. Secretly. He he wasn't public about it, or tried not to be. Not not at all. Um, He used international companies to do, to kind of create a shell game about it, um, helping, you know, uh, obtaining help from various other business associates. The Crown Building was then the focus of various lawsuits after the fall of the Marcos regime. Um, Numerous parties, including the Philippine government, claimed rights to the building. Uh, Lawsuits claimed that Marcos had entered into various agreements for the building or purchased it with money that was not his. And all the parties involved agreed to sell the building and split the proceeds in excess of what was then an $89 million mortgage. Um, It hasn't really sort of slowed down the fact that this is still one of the, the great kind of, I think, New York architectural moments. And one of the things that makes the Crown Building so special is that because of the nature of um, Fifth Avenue at that juncture, where it opens up into the Plaza District, and there is the the Plaza and the Park come right after Bergdorf Woodman's, the Crown Building can be seen the entire length of Fifth Avenue when you're looking south. No matter how far north you go, you have that spectacular kind of golden crown at the top of it. It really is a tremendous piece of architecture. And now we're going to go across the street to the Salo building. Um, It's one of two that look strikingly similar from the outside and that they have angled facades that slowly straighten out uh, above a particular floor. Uh, Do you want to talk about the Salo building? Yes. The Grace building is the other building that Jeff is thinking of, which is on West uh, 42nd Street facing Bryant Park. The Salo building itself is the larger of the two structures, uh, built in 1974 and designed by Gordon Bunshaft of the famous firm of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Um, It was developed by Sheldon Salo, who named the building after himself. Uh, No little ego he. And (laughs) continued to manage and own the building until his death. The building is striking not just for its its very, I think, graceful and very eye-catching shape, its height, it's, uh, it's sort of sense of massiveness in, in kind of consideration of its neighbors, but also for housing a private gallery of Salo's art collection, which included works by Franz Klein, Henri Matisse, and Alberto Giovanetti, um, managed under the nonprofit Salo Art and Architecture Foundation, but perpetually closed and not open to the public. You can go and sort of look at it through the plate glass windows on the ground floor, and it is a spectacular jewel box collection. Um, I don't know what's to become of that, because as Jeff, as you know, uh, well, uh, Salo has died um, a few months ago, so yes. it'll be interesting to see kind of what does happen to that collection. It would be wonderful if it was maintained kind of on site and the public were allowed to go in and look at it, because uh, it is spectacular. Uh, there is we do have something. We do have something on the lower floor, uh, on the lower level, that actually, well, not during COVID times, but before and certainly afterward, which is extremely accessible to the public, and in fact, that you and I have been to a number of times. You more oh, than yes. me, I think, but I've been there. Yes. It's 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 where I hold my annual birthday party, uh, or did so, uh, as as Jeff says, prior to COVID. Uh, basement level restaurant once the building cafeteria. It's known as eight and a half and incorporates an extraordinary work. A large stained glass mural by the artist Fernand Leger, one of only two by that artist in the world. There's also a huge ceiling fixture attributed to Lalique, and there is an incredible 
dramatic central spiral staircase designed separately by the artist Kevin Roche, who was responsible for the Ford Foundation. And the staircase was cast in cement as a single piece. It's like a, a flying staircase of the colonial period, but at this kind of massive, brutalist scale. Um, there's also, of course, the large red sculpture of the Digit 9, uh, announcing the building's address, designed by the graphic artist Ivan Chomayev. And that is one of the, I think, kind of great moments of, of West 57th Street is the view of that, that, that 9. It's just such a, a kind of a fun, silly, and yet monumental kind of piece of work. Yes, yes, it's really something. Um, well, we're going to go down the block to something a little bit more traditional and having to do with music and actually encompassing a lot of New York musical history. And I'm talking about the Steinway Building, which is now part of the Steinway Tower. Yep, 11, uh, 111 West 57th Street, also known as the Steinway Tower. It's a super tall residential skyscraper um, developed by uh, JDS Development Group uh, on Billionaire's Row. This is where we get a little bit of the Billionaire's Row action. Uh, the earlier section is Steinway Hall, the 16-story former Steinway and Sun store at the building's base, designed again by Warren and Wetmore, like the Crown Building, Grand Central Station's architects. Um, really a gorgeous Oaks Tower, just one of the most dignified buildings, I think, on West 77th Street. Um, it has a spectacular lobby, uh, which was used as a sort of a testing room for pianos, a showcase for Steinway pianos. Uh, and the piano bank in the basement had over 300 pianos at one point, valued at over $15 million. A New York wow. article in 2001 said almost every 20th century virtuoso had passed through that first floor reception room while I headed to the concert and artist department in the basement. Um, my dad, who's probably listening to this right now, is one of the people who he, he is a musician. And I had a great moment with him in New York when we were able to kind of tour the piano area, et cetera, and so forth, uh, prior to Steinway um, selling the building. There are a lot of performances at this building in that gorgeous kind of front hall. Uh, one of the most famous was the 1928 duo Piano Recital by Vladimir Horowitz and Sergei Rachmaninoff. In 1997, the Steinway artist Jeffrey Bagel performed the first classical music recital transmitted live over the internet with audio and video, sent from Steinway Hall itself. Wow. Such history. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding, uh, this week focusing on Central Park South and 57th Street between 5th and 8th Avenues. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Are you a 
business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Back to Rediscovering New York and this episode about Central Park South and Billionaires Row on 57th Street. Um, my guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. I do want to do a little plug for a book of one of my co-hosts and actually our engineer, uh, Sam Leibowitz. Sam just recently wrote and published a book called Everyday Awakening. Uh, you will find inspiration, hope, depth, and new perspectives that challenge your existing paradigm and elevate your awareness, energy, and happiness. And when you read it, you will realize that new perspectives can give rise to incredible clarity in your life. Uh, by the way, it's a number one bestseller in the New Age Mysticism, New Thought, and Chakra categories on Amazon, as well as an international bestseller. I have a copy of the book. Since Sam and I have been at remote locations, I have not gotten my copy inscribed yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that when Sam and I get to meet again which I hope will be before too long. Uh, David, moving on along, uh, we're going to move to the corner of 57th Street and 7th Avenue into one of the most famous buildings in New York and certainly probably the most famous building in music in the United States, and that's Carnegie Hall. What a structure that is. My God. That is, it, really, Carnegie Hall, along with Grand Central Terminal, is probably one of my favorite buildings in New York City. And one of the things I like about it is that it's actually a very plain building. It's It's very... It's just sort of there, you know, it's this big, gorgeous musical barn. It was designed by the architect William Bernal Tuthill, built, of course, by philanthropist Andrew Carnegie in 1891. And I don't need to say, one of the most prestigious venues in the world for both classical and popular music. Um, it, it presents about 250 performances each season. Isaac Stern Auditorium seats 2,804 on five levels, named after the great violinist Isaac Stern in 1997 to recognize his efforts to save the hall from demolition in the 1960s when they thought the building was coming down. Um, all but the top level could be reached by elevator. I had a moment, I had a very notable episode of Vertigo once in that building, like looking over the balcony structure. Oh, yeah, uh, it's but, easy to do because it is, it is really massive and looking up. It is actually an incredible interior. I think it's architecturally, it's actually one of the glories of New York, even though it's very, very severe. Um, most of the great performers of classical music since the time Carnegie Hall was built have performed in the main hall. Uh, Toscanini, uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, Bruno Walter, um, just 
some, some incredible talent. And I think almost more importantly in some ways is that Carnegie Hall has always been a place where, as, as I say, popular music as well. And we have like legendary jazz and music performers giving memorable performances there. Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington, Glenn Miller, Billy Holiday, Billy Eckstein, Keith Jarrett, Judy Garland, uh, Charles Abensmore, Simon and Garfunkel, Nina Simone, Shirley Bassey, all of them made celebrated live recordings of their concerts at Carnegie Hall. It was also the site of many famous lectures, including the Tuskegee Institute Silver Anniversary Lecture by Booker T. Washington, and the last public lecture by Mark Twain. Both were in 1906, and if I may honk my family's horn a little bit, my family actually performed at Carnegie Hall as a family act back in, we think, like the early 1920s or so. Um, it was the uh, location of one of the very first African-Americans to sing at a public music hall or opera house of this caliber, Ciceretta Jones, um, who sung in June 15, 1892. The Benny Goodman Orchestra gave a sold-out swing and jazz concert in 1938. Count Basie, Duke Ellington, the list just goes on and on, really. Mm. Well, wow. Um we're going to go uh, a block away and go to a building that was like its neighbor on Central Park South that was also designed for artists and their work. And I'm speaking about the famous Gainsborough Apartments. Well, the Roden Studios. I'm sorry, the Roden Studio. Sorry, Gainsborough was on Central Park South. An I've been amazing, caught. I've been busted. Amazing building, um, really kind of reflecting, as we've already explored, kind of the idea of the studio apartment. Um so 1908, of course, is the Gainsborough Cooperative. And then uh, several years later, the Roden Studios was built, uh, de- designed by Cass Gilbert, who did the Woolworth Building. So it's in this incredible sort of birdcage Gothic style and was the home of numerous artists, um, like glorious interiors. Uh, Theodore Dreiser, the novelist, actually, was probably the most famous um, inhabitant of the building. He moved into a duplex on the 13th floor, with his wife, Helen Richardson, and their white Russian wolfhound. Uh, and they entertained everyone from Otto Kahn, Sherwood Anderson, Alexander Wolcott, Ernest Boyd, Dorothy Parker, and the British novelist John Cooper Powers. Uh, after the middle of the century, the art apartments were converted into office space, and most of the interior details, unfortunately, were removed. Uh, but the building was extensively restored and uh, in 2006, 2008, and is a New York City landmark. Yeah, the, the, the restoration that it went through really brought back so much of its original exterior architectural glory. It's such a, it's such a wonder just to pass by and, and look up and look at it, look at the facade. Um, speaking of art, we also have the Art Students League across 57th Street. Yes, it was a place where my mother actually studied, uh, as did many other people, obviously, uh, throughout the years. It's one of the, the first sort of arts clubs that was known for a broad appeal to both amateur and professional artists. So it kind of really crosses the board. Um, artists can study full time, but there have never been any degree programs or grades. And it's kind of an informal um, attitude of almost an atelier, a, a salon, in other words, where you, you get to sort of meet interesting artists who tell you or suggest things that you can do. Um, the building is actually quite beautiful. It's designed in the French Renaissance style uh, by Henry Hardenberg, who also did the Plaza Hotel and the Dakota. Um, and well-known artists who have served as instructors include none other than Thomas Hart Benton. 
Alexander Calder, William Mallard Chase, Stuart Davis, Thomas Eakins, Daniel Chester French, George Gross, Philip Gustin, Charles Hassim, Robert Henry, Hans Hoffman, Maxfield Parrish, Augustus St. Gaudens, and George Tucker. So very, very dynamic lineup. Mm. Well, David, like always, we go into such detail and everything we talk about is really fascinating, but we're almost out of time. And the minute that we have less, let's talk about the Osborne. Ah, one of my favorite buildings in New York City, kind of a Richardsonian Romanesque pile, um, heavily rusticated, a really bizarre building, actually, to look at in some ways, very severe. The developer, Thomas Osborne, was a stone contractor, so obviously he wanted to make the best use possible of his material. But uh, while the facades are a very heavily rusticated combination of Romanesque and Romantic revivals, uh, the lobby is a masterpiece. It is a Byzantine dream of gilded tiles. There are contributions by Augustus St. Gaudens, by John Lafarge, one of the great muralists and stained glass artists, by Louis Comfort Tiffany and his studios, the French designer Jacob Adolphus Hauser. Um, I don't think there's an apartment building in the world who can quite boast something as magical as the lobby of the Osborne. Um, it's very labyrinthine. It's also one of the first buildings in the world not only to be fireproof, but soundproof. Wow. So it was very popular with composers, opera singers, and musicians who were, of course, appearing at Carnegie Hall just across the street. Um, in 1961, the building was sold to a developer who planned to demolish it and replace it with an entirely new 17-story apartment building. Fortunately, the residents organized its purchase and conversion into a cooperative the next year. So it has remained with us as, I think, one of the great domestic icons of New York City. That's great. And it's one of the rare cooperatives that were not affordable housing that have been owned with the buildings that are owned by the city, where the owners organized and actually bought it directly from the owner instead of the owner converting it on their own to co-ops and then selling it off to insiders. David, we are at a time. It goes so quickly. I want to thank you. Our guest has been David Griffin, the show's special consultant. David's company is Landmark Branding. You can reach him and find out about his services more at www.landmarkbranding.com. A program note, since we didn't have time to talk about the newer structures on Billionaire's Row, uh, stay tuned for a future program that's going to talk about and explore how current buildings, uh, recent buildings have added to the skyline in New York. Well, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategies at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the famous author, Sam Leibowitz. Our production assistant is Brenda Letizia. And of course, our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, our guest tonight. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc are you a small business trying to navigate the covid19 related employment laws Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, Employment Law Business Law Attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 